You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. Thanks to Concordia University, Wisconsin for supporting The Coffee Hour. You can find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin at cuw.edu. Live Uncommon. It is Bach Week. We have today and tomorrow left in Bach Week. Interesting topics. We're going to talk about Lutheran Chorale today, the, the Lutheran Chorale. What is it? Where did it begin? And how long have we had the Lutheran Chorale? We're going to mm. dig into that in just a moment. Our guest is Dr. Martin Dickey, former missionary in Papua New Guinea, and now serves on the board for David's Harpa Center for Musical Development. Dr. Dickey, welcome back to the Coffee Hour. Well, good to be here. I am excited to have you back for Bach Week. I think last time we talked on Bach Week, you had you, you had done a presentation on Bach, I believe, in Asia, if I remember mm-hmm. correctly, and shared with us a little bit of feedback on that. For our listeners not familiar with your background as a music, church musician and a, a missionary as well, can you share with us just a little bit about the what you've studied and where you've served? Oh, sure. Well, let's see. I actually was born in Papua New Guinea. My father was missionary there for 20 years. And the reason I got really looked into our musical heritage as Lutherans, well, we used the, in our, in our school there, the Lutheran hymnal, 1941. And, but then they had, my parents had a small record collection, among which was Handel's Messiah and it's in Bach. And so then we came off the mission field, started exploring, well, especially the Bach cantatas found it just absolutely fascinating and decided to enter become a musician myself. So I taught for 15 years at Concordia Academy in St. Paul, Minnesota as a Lutheran high school teacher, I served as director of music or cantor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Peoria for 14 years where we started the Peoria Bach Festival and then I decided to go off to the mission field. We were having trouble getting missionaries to go back to Papua New Guinea. So I was there for three years and the pandemic hit and we were advised to evacuate. Mm. So we had trouble getting back. But then I did serve for three months in Taiwan. I was able to work remotely for the rest of that time, primarily with like editing Lutheran Heritage Foundation books for the mission field over there and hoping to get three of those book shipments into Papua New Guinea. So now I've retired and moved back to Minnesota, the Red Wing area where my grandfather grew up. So I'm attending my ancestral church where Dickies have been for like over 100 years. So it's really fun to meet all these relatives I never knew before. <laughs> that is really cool to be kind of among among the place of your forefathers up yep. there. Yep. So you, we, we know we've talked before with you about your love of church music, your love of Bach and we want to talk about the chorale today. Before we dig into the history, what is a chorale? Well, a chorale is essentially a Lutheran hymn. And the reason it was called the chorale is because that the Latin term choralis was the, was the term used for the melody of the Gregorian chant. And so then when Lutherans started singing again in the congregations, they essentially began singing the melody that, you know, what would have been sung by the monks. And so then as they just assumed that Latin term choralis, and then in, in the English, it's choral. In the German, it's without the E, it's C-H-O-R-L, choral. Yeah, so Christoph Wolf talks a little bit about that in his book, The Learned Musician. What was, and you shared with this with us a little bit about this already, what was Luther's influence on church music that was then carried on by Bach? 
Well, so with all, after all of the traumatic events of, you know, 1517 and all the things that happened after that, and then him being kicked out of church, excommunicated, he was pretty stubborn. And he's like, you know, no, this is what the word of God says. And so he translated the Bible into German. He got in trouble for that. Then he wrote a document defending that and why, you know, even if the government tells you not to have this Bible, you should still read it. And so, because this is the word of God, there are times when we need to be God, not man. Then he's like, well, the people need to worship in their own language. So then he worked on the German mass or the German worship service or what we call today the divine service or German Gottesdienst. And then, then he also was like, you know what, they also should be singing songs in their own language. And we do have a letter from, that he wrote to Spalatin, in which he included, I think it was his uh, hymn of Psalm 130 from Depths of Woe. And he's like, you know what, I'm trying to recruit people to write hymns for the German people. It included a sample. And so then they started to, so he started to write some hymns and some others started to write some hymns. And initially then they just published these as single sheets or what we would call, what they call in the literature, broadsheets. And then would just sell them on the, on the streets. And then street singers or what they called Meister singers or troubadours would pick them up and start singing them all over the place. And they started to spread like wildfire. And so then we get to 1524, and some think it might have been the end of 1523, and some of the publishers were like, you know what, we should put these into a little book. So they collected eight of them and published what we would say is the first Lutheran hymnal in 1524. It had a big, long German name, but then they just started calling it the Achtliederbuch, or the Book of Eight Songs. So the first one is actually what we still have in our hymnal today. Do Christians want and all rejoice? And then the second one was salvation unto us has come, which in the German, and then a couple of the others that were in there were, oh, God looked down from heaven above, which was included in the, the Lutheran hymnal 1941, but not in our latest hymnal. From Depths of Woe was another one. Then later that year, that one was so successful that in Erfurt, they published what we would say is the second Lutheran hymnal, which, well, and that was published by two different publishers. One had 26 songs, one had 25, but essentially they were the same content. All of the eight songs from the Oxalita book or the eight song book were included and then 18 more, including like Savior of the Nations, Come. Christ Jesus lay in death, strong man's come, Holy Ghost, God and Lord, all of which we still sing today. As we look at the, the what we sing today, do you think we really, we recognize the heritage of that when we sing these hymns and uh, when we hear these chorales today? Do, ha, have we lost connection with that heritage? Oh, I think in some cases people have. In some cases, they really don't know about them or they, they, it is a harder music to sing than say some of the songs that are sung today in churches. At the same time, there are ways to share them and teach them. So for instance, we most recently remember is at Trinity Lutheran Church in Denver and their pastor, Adrian Sherrill, who's actually the brother of Nathan Sherrill, the, the head of David's heart. Anyway, he 
when he started it 20 years ago, he just started to teach the children these songs one by one. And now the congregation sings pretty much anything. So it was really, very fun to go into that church and sing these great Lutheran hymns. And also we would normally sing all the stanzas. Yes. <laughs> I'm here for that. <laughs> but it's, it's really, it's not so much, you know, singing them because of the historical aspect of it, but because of the proclamation, you know, that they contain, you know, in it. So, and it was, the Lutheran hymnody was so successful that there was some literature of some Catholic monks who were complaining that we need to, you know, try and get these Lutherans to stop singing these hymns because they are, you know, learning Luther's theology through these hymns. <laughs> so Bach celebrated the 200th anniversary of the Lutheran Chorale in 1724. You mentioned Luther and his, his, his music, the Lutheran music in 1524. Bach celebrated the 200th anniversary in 1724. How did he celebrate this? Was it in usual grand Bach musical style? <laughs> yeah, actually, it's, it's a pretty amazing story. So a couple, of years, a couple of years ago, I made that connection myself, but then I was able to confirm it with an article that Robin Lieber had written, published several years ago, where he talked about how, you know, Leipzig was really a Lutheran town and, and was also celebrated a lot of the different Lutheran anniversaries as they came up. So Bach in 1724, well, he, well, we're at the station now where we're, have a lot of 300 anniversaries coming up for Bach and his heritage and a lot and his music and what he and his legacy and what he left us. I was alive actually in 1985 when we celebrated Bach's 300th the anniversary, anniversary of his birth. And it was such an event. I mean, there were, you know, events all over the world and, and then in even countries you wouldn't think necessarily would recognize Bach for issuing stamps, commemorative stamps, you know, about Bach and the the 200th anniversary of his birth. Well, now we're at the point, 1723, where this is the 300th anniversary of Bach becoming Leipzig Cantor. And so the, uh, he accepted the position in May and then began his duties actually May 31st. So then the next month, he began writing his first cantata cycle. This was something that he had wanted to do as a young man. He, he said, I want to establish some well-regulated church music. And so he began writing a cantata cycle. Then for 1724, he began his new cantata cycle. So it begins on the first Sunday of Trinity. So he, our one-year lectionary actually coincides, coincides exactly with the lectionary they were using at that time. It's the exact same thing. And so then, yeah, he began to then write a whole cantata cycle based on all of these Lutheran hymns. What is a cycle? What is a cantata cycle? I'm gathering it's, it's, it follows the whole year, correct? Right. Well, in this case, in the case, it follows the liturgical year. So it could be another context based on, uh, you know, some other... A foundational principle, but in case in this case, right, it's something that coincides with the lectionary. 
We have more to learn about the Lutheran Chorale and Bach's choral cantata cycle. We'll continue that in just a moment. Right here on The Coffee Hour, I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. At Concordia University, Wisconsin, we believe you were created for a reason, to use your God-given gifts to help others, to live a life of self-sacrifice in a me-first world, to live a life that's uncommon. Whether you're taking one of 50-plus online programs or learning with us in person on the shores of Lake Michigan, you'll be equipped to make an uncommon impact. Learn more at cuw.edu. Concordia University, Wisconsin. Live Uncommon. Welcome back to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. It is Bach Week. Today we are talking with Dr. Martin Dickey, former missionary in Papua New Guinea, and he serves on the board for David's Harp, a center for musical development. Today we're talking about Bach's celebration of the Lutheran Chorale, the 200th anniversary of the Lutheran Chorale in 1724, and then, in turn, his chorale cantata cycle. So tell us more about this chorale cantata cycle that was in... That was he started writing that in 1924. So then it went through a whole year. So that would have gone through. I mean, through 1724. Yeah, 17. It was 1725. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah, 1724 through 1725. Right. So, what do we? Where do we hear this cantata cycle today? What connection do we have to Bach's chorale cantata cycle today that he wrote in 1724 or 1725? The best place to learn about this is Christoph Wolf's two books. One is a biography of Bach, The Learned Musician. The latest edition was published in 2013, so I would get the latest edition. So he takes a lot of the Bach research and, and then puts it all mostly in chronological form. Then in 2020, he wrote a book just on Bach's music itself. And in chapter four, he talks about this cantata cycle. It's the, the chapter is entitled, The Most Ambitious of All Projects, Crawl Cantatas Throughout the Church Year. And so it wasn't until last century where we began to understand how ambitious this was, because most people assumed, including Philip Spitta, that Bach just composed these cantatas, all his cantatas, like, you know, randomly throughout his life, and, and you know, but it was last century with Alfred Durer that he began to realize that this particular cantata cycle was all composed in one year, which meant that he was composing like one cantata a week for 40 weeks in a row. And this is pretty amazing considering that at the same time he was also a teacher. And then once a month, he had to serve as the, quote, inspector unquote, for the school children, which means he would have to get them up at six o'clock in the morning, make sure they were there for breakfast and all that stuff. Then they are classes from seven to 10 and one to three. And then in the meantime, he was teaching private lessons and then somehow finding time to compose <laughs> all these things. And so, but the cantata cycle begins with the first Sunday of Trinity, which coincides with Bach's second year as Leipzig Cantor is also coincide with the beginning of the school of the school year at the Thomas Schule. And so then, yeah, he composed like one cantata per week for like oh, a little over 40 weeks in a row, which is just astounding. 
So Robert Marshall talks about how well, so he probably would have composed the the big opening movements first, so then he could give those parts to students and maybe even his wife and whoever who could then copy the parts out so they could then give them and send them out to the instrumentalists at the same time, start rehearsing them with the choir and then get the, get then compose the solos and then get them out to the soloists and then probably have some rehearsals in between with the soloists and the instrumentals involved in the arias. Then maybe have a run through on Saturday. Boom. Then can then perform it on Sunday during the worship service. So, but yeah, it's just pretty amazing. What kind of reach has this cantata cycle had over nearly three hundred years? I mean, that that's a. I'm, I'm imagining that's a lot of performances that have happened. Yeah, well, for the first one hundred years, it was pretty much forgotten, uh, and then. Uh, composers know about Bach's the keyboard music. Beethoven studied. Mozart knew a little bit about Bach's music. There's this, a story that one day he happened to be in Leipzig and went to the church and the choir was singing one of Bach's motets. And so he was just absolutely amazed. And so he sat down with the parts and he's, this is music. This, this is something that somebody can learn from and was studying this music on his knees in the floor of Leipzig, the church there. But but it wasn't until Mendelssohn revived the uh, St. Matthew Passion that then the really popular uprising, or what shall we say, uh, people started to really, the music about began to be popularized. And so then uh, they began to publish his collected works, Bach, Gesellschaft, Hausgabe, BGA, and uh, so then ultimately, it's really not until, like I say, the last century that we began to fully understand this Satara cycle. So. Speaking of Bach's music today, I know that you work with David's harp. Where do we see Bach's music today? In You mentioned some of the hymns already. Where do we see Bach's influence in even some of our youngest musicians in the church. Tell us about some of the work that that you're doing with David's harp and where Bach's music has had an impact on that church music today. Well, yeah, Bach's influence is pretty incredible because, I mean, he's performed all over the world and although maybe not necessarily appreciated by a lot of even the Lutherans, still there, there are many people who are not Lutheran who study and uh, perform it. There's Bach festivals all over the world. And then they they really, they study the text and the theology in order to study the music. What we're kind of lacking right now is resources to, devotional resources that help people understand the texts at a devotional level and then, under, and then appreciate the music for how it then communicates the, and proclaims the word. So, those are some resources I've been have some ideas. I'm now that I'm retired, I'm planning on working on them. As far as children, we're David Harp is committed to developing resources to get children at the youngest age to be able to play these hymns and then appreciate them, appreciate their theology. And they also include some incredible artwork by Edward Ross. So to to help them 
uh, appreciate and in with all their senses the word of God. And uh, so what we're looking at right now with David's harp is well, so far they have five main resources out right now. So four piano books, or repertoire books, which I encourage you to go to their website, davisartmusic.org, and check those out, especially if you're a piano teacher or if you have a child that's learning piano, provide some resources that they could learn and then play in church. But then they also have a liturgy volume out, so something that's useful even for like small churches. And so what we're looking at next year is coming up with a book on the refer the great reformation hymns. And so in fact, last week I was working on composing some settings of that particular book. Also, Pastor Cheryl, now Pastor Nathan Cheryl has said that some have also requested a book of the catechism hymns, Luther's catechism hymns. And so that's another application that we're thinking about and looking at working on. Why is it important to make this music accessible to young children, especially through David's Harp, the wonderful resources you put out that are accessible to beginners all the way through adults? Why is this important for for you and for David's Harp to make these resources, these Reformation hymns accessible? Well, for us, it's primarily because they proclaim the gospel in such a powerful way. And so, yeah. That's that's the main reason. I mean, a, a lot of people, you know, reject this heritage because they can't connect with it. And part of it, perhaps, is because we don't have these simpler resources that, that can be used. Our guest today, Dr. Martin Dickey, former missionary to Papua New Guinea and also serves on the board for David's Harp, a center for musical development. Dr. Dickey, thank you for celebrating Bach Week with us with this great history. Well, thank you for having us, and thank you for having a Bach Week. <laughs> You've been listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support The Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Anywhere.